Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, Corey, I think today's conversation is going to be really interesting, and it's actually one that's been requested by some of our listeners. There's so much to talk about here, and we'll only be able to cover a portion of it, but a lot of what we intend to discuss is the role that the military and our military spending plays in the larger collapse conversation. And I just want to say right up front that we always intend to be descriptive and not prescriptive. This is a sensitive topic in many ways. People have very strong feelings about our military and what that means and everything it represents. So we'll be sharing some things that are concerning, especially as it relates to collapse. But the purpose isn't to say like, oh, here's what our policy should be. And I also just want to mention that I have friends that have served in the military and I have just an incredible amount of respect for the men and women who have served in the military. Anyways, I feel like a few of those caveats are necessary as we dive into this. And perhaps as a caveat to your caveat, I would also mention that really anyone who tries to serve nobly for their country, whatever country that is, you know, we're we're going to be speaking specifically a lot about the U.S. because of its relevance in the world, especially when it comes to its footprint. But the purpose of the episode is definitely not to say that one military is better than another military or that any military at all is is great. Like you said, we're not talking about prescription. We're talking about description and, and sort of what the issue is and how it applies to collapse. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. So with collapse, we've talked at length about capital. 
and especially when it comes to catabolic collapse, and as we experience more of these catastrophes and crises, the amount of capital that we put toward anything is going to be really important to understand. So I think a good start here is to establish kind of a baseline of understanding for what the cost of our military is. And like you said, we'll be talking primarily about the United States, and we'll be talking mostly about costs in dollars. However, I do want to say that there are less tangible costs that are perhaps more significant in other ways. For example, whether it's the U.S. military or any other military, my heart just breaks for all of the injuries, all of the deaths. You know, I know veterans have higher rates of depression and anxiety, PTSD, there's higher suicide rates, higher rates of alcohol and substance abuse. You can't really put a dollar on those kind of costs, right? The negative impacts that it's having on so many lives. And so I think it's worth calling that out. But when it comes to just dollars, I feel like the amount of military spending is astronomical. And so I think it's important for us to understand what kind of numbers we're talking about. Yeah, so the first thing that I'll mention is that the U.S. spends more on their military than the next 10 countries combined. So in order of most spending to least after the U.S. is China, India, Russia, the U.K., Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, Japan, South Korea, Italy, and Australia. And the U.S. spends more than all of those combined. We also spend twice as much on the military as a percentage of GDP than the second highest, which is the UK. So not only are we spending way, way, way more dollars, we're also spending way more money when compared to our total GDP. And the dollar amount has fluctuated over the years. It's increased sharply from 100 years ago, and it's primarily just gone up. There's been moments of decrease and increase. In the year 2022, the proposed budget for military spending is $765 billion, which is half of all discretionary funds. So the way the government budget works is there are discretionary funds and there are mandates. And the mandates are things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these benefits that are required for welfare. And then there's the discretionary budget, which they can kind of decide how much should go to each different thing. So outside of the designated defense budget itself, there's also the Veterans Affairs budget, which they separate. Um, but when you combine those, because they're both dealing in the military, uh, the government will spend an additional $114 billion in 2022. So combined, that's $879 billion, which is 58% of all discretionary funds. Some of the other notable expenses in the discretionary budget are, and these are in order of how much we're spending on each in 2022, housing, education, government, health, energy and environment, international affairs, transportation, science, labor, and food and agriculture. So those are all the things that we talk about as far as like our sort of social infrastructure. When we talk about catabolic collapse, we talk about capital. And each of those things in the discretionary budget are all critical parts of our government's capital needed to maintain our societal function. And some interesting things to pinpoint, you know, we spend just $79 billion dollars on health, which is less than 10% of what we're spending on the military. 59 billion on energy and environment, 43 billion on science, and only 15 billion on food and agriculture, which is less than 1% of the discretionary budget. So when you compare the amount that we're spending on defense 
which is 58%, and the amount that we're spending on food and agriculture, which is just 1%. It's not hard to make that connection and see why in the future, if there's a struggle with uh, being able to support ourselves with enough food, you know, why that problem is. Yeah, to me, those comparisons that you talked about really highlight where our priorities are. I know that, for example, in 2020, we had a budget of over $700 billion for our military. And yet in 2020, the EPA's budget was like $9 billion. And so these big programs that you think are playing a really critical function amount to just like a rounding error when you compare it to the military's budget. Yeah. You know, you think back to the pollution episode where we talked about the EPA and the Superfund sites and how they're just underfunded. And it's like (laughs) you could increase the EPA budget by like 100%. You could double it and take that from the military spending and it would hardly make a dent in the military spending. Right. But it can make such a huge difference to our pollution situation. And you could say the same thing about any of these other possible areas where this money could be budgeted. You know, you think of infrastructure. We talk about dams and roads and all the money that needs to go towards fixing those things. And while, yes, that amount of money is huge that's needed, um, if there was ever a place to take it from, <laughs> you, you look at this just behemoth of a budget consumer that is the military, and uh, and there's no doubt. And it, it's funny because you see year to year they'll make these adjustments between all of the other discretionary, the non-military discretionary areas, and they can vary quite widely. One year, one area might get a ton of funding, and the next year it's hardly anything. But when you compare it to the military's budget, it's all hardly anything. Yeah, on that note, it's not that it's not important for us to be putting at least some resources toward our defense as a nation. But I thought it was really interesting. I came across an article. It's a Scientific American article, and the subtitle of it said, In an era of pandemics and climate change, we need to reconsider what national security means. And the point there is that we've had trillions of dollars thrown at increasing our arsenal and our fighting force. And yet those things are powerless against these other major threats that are really negatively impacting us. So if you look at the Department of Defense's own accounting, taxpayers spent $13.34 trillion on the U.S. military between the year 2000 and 2019. And then you can add to that another $3.18 trillion for the Veterans Administration. But then think about the fact that the U.S. has lower life expectancy and a higher suicide rate than Australia, Canada, France, Germany, the UK, right? All these other wealthy countries. Americans have the highest rates of diabetes, hypertension, heart and lung disease, obesity. And again, going back to things like pandemics and all of the outrageous impacts of climate change, when you actually look at where we're putting our resources as a nation, it seems like we're not really taking care of our national security. And there are other claims to kind of counter that, you know, that with all the terrorist cells and rogue nations and rising powers and this global ratcheting up of military advancements, that we have this growing number of threats we need to make sure we prevent against. But again, it's just interesting to think that perhaps the biggest threats against the U.S. by comparison are the things that we are putting the least amount of resources toward. 
Yeah, it's well said. You know, you think of healthcare and how so many countries are way more progressive in covering the healthcare costs of their citizens, you know, and so many Americans are just blown away by this idea of going to the hospital and not having to pay your medical bills. I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso, but there was an episode where they're in they're in England and one of the American guys is in the hospital and, and he was like, so let me get this straight. You're going to fix me. Or he was talking to, about someone else getting fixed and he's like, and it's not going to cost a thing. And they were like, well, yeah, duh. Like, that's just your human right to, to health. And he was just blown away by that. And then you look at the spending, our discretionary spending in health versus military. And you can see, obviously, again, what you said about what we're making a priority. And Kellen, I think I, you know, honestly, I think I'm a little more pessimistic towards military as a whole, not just in the US, but in general, the idea of these huge militaries, the idea of ratcheting up tensions, you know, by having this continual race on weaponry and and now why we have nuclear and and many of the wars fought throughout the world I feel like are pointless. I think my my personal views on it probably weigh a little more pessimistic than yours. I won't I don't know. I I won't pretend to know your views. And that's not at all what we're talking about here in this episode. Again, not about what's right and what's wrong with the military. So whatever your viewpoint is listening to this, I'm sure some people will be more pro-military. Some people will be more anti-military. There is no denying that there are many threats to a society and to a nation that don't necessarily come from another nation or or a terrorist cell or something like that. And quite frankly, I think the U.S. has abandoned many of those, and it is what makes us especially vulnerable to the possibility of collapse. So something that I thought was interesting is breaking down the expenses within the military and how those have changed over time does offer some interesting insights. So, for example, in 2020, you had mentioned over $700 billion were allotted towards military spending. The largest category was operation and maintenance, which was $279 billion. So that covers the cost of military operations such as training and planning, maintenance of equipment, and most of the military healthcare system. So that cost in 2020 was about 40% of the total military spending. However, in 1970, only 25% of military spending was on operation and maintenance. So the amount of budget that's going towards just maintaining the military system basically is increasing dramatically. Meanwhile, the cost of paying members of the military and funding their retirement has decreased. So in 1970, it was 35% of the cost, and now it's only 20%. So those two things have basically flipped. We're paying less to the members of the military and their retirement, and we're paying much more just towards maintaining the equipment. And when I read that, it kind of just started ringing some alarm bells to me around the idea of catabolic collapse and maintenance costs. I mean, this is literal maintenance costs. And we're seeing that as the maintenance costs are increasing, the amount of money left over to fund some of the other more important parts of keeping the military afloat are disappearing. And just to speak to that a little bit more, there was a report from the Pentagon in January 2019 that found 46 of the U.S. military's 79 high-priority installations are vulnerable to climate change, meaning related flooding, drought, desertification, wildfires, thawing permafrost. The majority of these high-priority installations are in danger of that, and so those maintenance costs are only going to get more severe. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. 
um, of the effect that climate change is going to have on our system as a whole, but especially on the military. And that brings about this question of what does the future of military spending look like? So one source I found said that it's projected to increase to over $900 billion by 2030. So that's a pretty significant increase. Um, and then we'll hit a trillion just a few years later. I don't know that that takes into account the projected increases in expenses of maintenance due to climate change. My guess is that it doesn't. And since we know that, you know, everything is sort of faster than expected, worse than expected, I imagine that the cost of climate change on military operation and maintenance is going to be pretty dramatic. And we'll talk a little bit more about the future of the military and the role that it will play in society and in collapse um, a little bit later in the episode. But first, I wanted to mention that as a percentage of discretionary budget, military spending has had its ups and downs over the last 50 years. Um, you know, in 1970s, it was as low as like 44%. Then in the 80s, it was as high as 62%. And now it's sitting somewhere around the mid 50s. In total dollars, the military spending decreased in the 90s and then saw a sharp increase after 9-11, understandably. And then it is now rising sharply again. And I had just explained how it's supposed to hit 900 billion and then a trillion. So to me, the problem isn't necessarily so much that military spending as a percentage of the total is increasing. Part of the problem is what we've already discussed, that the, the total dollar amount being spent is increasing and that budget could probably be used more wisely somewhere else. But also that the cost of maintaining the military, its equipment and operations, is taking a larger and larger piece of that expense budget, which means that doing new research and development in the military will expand the military budget further. So they're not going to stop doing new research, right? But if the maintenance and operation piece is continually growing, in order to continue to do that R&D and advanced military technology, then they're going to have to continue to increase the budget. On top of that, you know, all discretionary funding outside of the defense budget is nearly two and a half times less than the budget deficit. So when we talk about budget deficit, we're talking about how much the government is going to spend in a given year versus how much revenue they make from taxes. And right now in 2022, the budget deficit was somewhere, I think around $1.6 trillion. So even if we took away all discretionary funding, including the military, that would still be less than what that budget deficit is. So if, if the U.S. decided that they were only going to spend the money that they had, they wouldn't be able to afford military or any of the other infrastructure like health, education, food, and ag, and all of that, which is just insane to me. And then lastly, um, the interest payments on U.S. debt is growing very rapidly. So the interest payment for 2022 is projected at more than $300 billion. <laughs> that is a massive interest bill. And as scary as that is, the scariest part to me is that it's projected to double by 2028 to $600 billion. $600 billion is nearly all the non-military discretionary budget for 2022. So with this insanely rapidly increasing interest payments being owed, it's quickly becoming the largest expense in the entire budget. But all the other stuff, the U.S. isn't just going to drop so that they can make their interest payments. They're going to still include that stuff, which is going to just simply mean they're creating a bigger deficit, which then more rapidly increases the debt, which increases the interest payments. We have no idea what's going to happen if the U.S. defaults on their debt because it's never happened before. There's a lot of different theories out there about how 
intense of a problem that would be. But it does seem that at this rate at which things are growing, it is just completely unsustainable. And so then the question that we have to ask ourselves at that point is, what role is the military going to take in the future as we head into a world with more conflict because of climate change, because of resource depletion, because of rising authoritarianism and fascism, scarcity of water, energy resources. You know, is the U.S. going to be able to keep out of the conflicts that are happening globally? Is it going to go out and create conflicts of its own? Or is it going to have conflict brought to it by other nations? All of the spending and the money that we've talked about up to this point is just the regular sort of peacetime spending. The U.S. during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars often considered the money going towards those wars as separate from defense spending. So when we're talking about adding in wars or potential world wars into this, it's just going to absolutely skyrocket the amount of money that we're talking about and the amount of resources that we're talking about being put into the military and thus the sacrifices that are going to be made to other parts of the budget. I know that sometimes the amount of money that's spent on the military is put in proportion to our GDP. And it's not as large of a percentage of GDP currently as it has been in the past, but we're also not in the middle of a world war or even like the Cold War. Like you said, this is a time of relative peace. So when you talk about military spending heading toward $1 trillion per year, and then you talk about just how large the deficit is and the rapidly increasing interest payments we have on our national debt and all these other things that are rising threats that we're not putting that money toward, all of that combined is pretty anxiety-inducing. And one thing that's interesting about that when it comes to military spending is that in a sense, we get less bang for our buck. Or I guess another way of putting it is that the costs of military equipment and weaponry keeps going up and up and up. And part of the reason for that is because it's just much more sophisticated than it ever was before. So you think about past generations when all of a sudden they needed to make airplanes and they could convert a civilian automobile factory into a military airplane factory. Well, now it takes years of research and development and the sophistication and the computer systems that almost every piece of weaponry has makes it so those items are much more expensive. And as an example of that, there's an individual by the name of Russell Roomba. He was previously a CIA military analyst and he was looking at the cost of fighter aircraft procured between 2001 and 2010 and how that compares to 1981 to 1990. And even when those numbers were adjusted for inflation, he said the Air Force spent 55% as much money to get 10% as many fighters. So again, it's just another example of how these items we need to procure for our military to have the same kind of strength it had relative to the past, it's much more expensive today. Yeah, Joseph Tainter has a really interesting lecture that he does. You can find it on YouTube where he just talks about the collapse of complex societies. And he talks about how there's diminishing returns on research and development. And he specifically talks about the military. And he mentions that like in the 50s and 60s, the the military produced something like 750 B-52 bombers. And then with the advent of the B-1 bomber, they were only able to produce something around like 100 And then later on, when it came to B-2 bombers, they were only able to produce 21 of them. And he talked about how, yeah, they're highly capable aircrafts, 
much more than the B-52s, but they can only be in 21 different places at once. And he talks about how it, it's basically, it's called a death spiral of military advancement. And it's just kind of based off of what you were saying. It's this idea that costs for the military increase exponentially, especially with new research and development. And it goes back to what we talked about, and this is actually where this idea comes from, that there's a diminishing return on investment when it comes to technological advancements. And the military is one of the most prime examples of this. And your example just now of the the car factories being transitioned pretty rapidly into military aircraft factories is a perfect example of how much more complex and difficult things have become over time and how any changes made in the military now require so much in regards to not only financial obligations, but logistics, as well as bureaucratic systems and operations. And that actually leads really well into something that I think is critical to this conversation, but it's something referred to as the military-industrial complex. And if we're talking about things that are unsustainable, things that demonstrate the system is broken, it's really important to understand this. I will say we could spend entire podcast series on this. And it's used, I think, a lot of times to kind of delve into conspiracy theories, and I'd like to avoid that. But anyways, this term, the military-industrial complex, really started or caught hold when President Eisenhower, who, by the way, was seen as a war hero. He was a former five-star general. But when his time as president came to an end, January 17th, 1961, he gave his farewell speech, and he kind of shocked people by spending time warning everyone against the military-industrial complex. He talked about unwarranted influence and misplaced power. So you might think, okay, what is it? It's essentially what it sounds like. It's the relationship between the military and the industry that supplies it and builds the weapons. We just talked about how, you know, several decades ago, they could quickly convert an automobile factory into a factory for military warplanes. But again, as weaponry has become extremely complex, takes all those years of research and development and computerized systems and advanced testing, it required an entire industry that spends its time and money building war supplies even when we're not at war. And this industry has grown a lot. And these huge companies, you think of Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, base systems, even some mega corporations that you've heard of outside of military context like AT&T and Boeing and GE, these companies are military contractors. So in other parts of the world, if they need to produce military supplies, it's the military that does it. In the U.S., however, it's private companies that are contracted by the government to make these military supplies. And as you can imagine, anytime there's a private industry working with the government and there are outrageous amounts of money being awarded in contracts, right? These billions and hundreds of billions of dollars every year that we've talked about, it leaves room for corruption. And one major concern of this whole military industrial complex is that you either need wars or the threat of wars to stay in business. And frankly, at this point, we've created a war economy without ever needing a war. Just like we talked about in times of relative peace, look at the way that we're spending on military. So you think about this 
potential corruption. One example, just from 2005, there was an executive from Boeing, Michael M. Sears. My understanding is he was in line to become the CEO. He ended up being forced to resign and even had to spend some time in prison. Boeing was fined over half a billion dollars. And a woman by the name of Darlene Druyan, who was an Air Force official, she ended up in prison because she had inflated the price of a contract. She shared some confidential information with Boeing about one of the other competitors for this contract that they were vying for. And eventually she was kind of positioned, she was set up to be put into a prominent position at Boeing, making over a quarter million dollars a year with a huge signing bonus. Anyways, it's one example that demonstrates when you've got a system like this, it incentivizes people to do things that aren't necessarily for the benefit of the country, that are more for their personal gain. And so, I'm, you know, just off the top of my head, a few ways in which this is scary and, and dangerous for a society is number one, like you just said, it's putting personal profits over the safety of the society itself. And so there can be foolish wars being gone into in an attempt to keep this military industrial complex moving. You know, I also think of the influence that these private companies have on socioeconomic policies. So we've talked a lot about lobbying on this podcast and how these private companies can lobby for specific laws to be put in place and not laws that benefit the people as a whole, but laws that benefit and make it easier for those companies to do contracts with the government you know, to the detriment of uh, environmental regulations, local communities, that sort of thing. Yeah, you're spot on. And technically, lobbying isn't illegal. Whether it's moral or not is another discussion. But yeah, there's a lot of open lobbying by these defense contractors. A lot of times they will make big political contributions, you know, or they'll finance a campaign. They'll line up a member of the Department of Defense for like a really promising career at their company. There's a lot of overt and covert efforts to make sure these companies can win these contracts and that policies are put in place that will benefit them. And when you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, there's a lot of money that can be used to sway decisions. And I mean, think about it. If you're Boeing and you're trying to increase profits, right? You're a company, you're trying to make money. And let's say you're competing against Airbus to land a government contract for billions of dollars to make these military aircraft. It makes sense as part of your strategy that you're going to try to sway public policy. You're going to try to sway and wine and dine these government officials. You're going to do what you can because it's going to increase your bottom line. And I know you said that lobbying isn't illegal, but I've said it before in episode six, and I'll say it again. It should be. I mean, how ridiculous is it that a politician, instead of listening to its constituents and working for its constituents, those politicians are literally working for their donors, for the people who are paying them, sometimes out in the open, but I think oftentimes it's done more behind closed doors and made to look like it's for the people. But really, it's literally filling politicians' pockets in order to allow for these things to happen that are not good for society as a whole. Yeah, and there's a lot of arguments, you know, for why people say the military-industrial complex is a good thing. Some people will say, well, look at all the jobs they're creating. But that's kind of 
based around a logical fallacy, that same amount of money could be put towards other industries and create the same number of jobs, if not more. You know, another point is that a lot of the technologies that we have, even like GPS and the internet, a lot of those technological advancements have come from defense projects. But that doesn't account for all the billions that are wasted in a lot of military R&D projects. In fact, I'm just going to read a brief paragraph from an article, and we'll link this in the episode description. But it says, In just the first decade of this century, the Pentagon was forced to cancel a dozen ill-conceived, ineffective weapons programs that cost taxpayers $46 billion. They included a future combat systems program, a fleet of networked high-tech vehicles that did not work, the Comanche helicopter, which, after 22 years of development, was never built, and the 40-ton Crusader artillery gun, which never even made it to the prototype stage. So those are just a few examples, but there are billions and billions of dollars being spent on weapons projects that don't ever actually work, or they just cost so much to maintain. And it often seems like those um, brilliant technologies that are coming out like gps and things like that over the years while yes there are many positive parts that they play in society and increasing our efficiency and our cost of living and all of that like we can't forget that many of those weapons and this is not just in the u.s military this is worldwide are being used also to commit sort of atrocities you know um, that same GPS system is being used to drop a missile from a drone on a wedding, you know, or, or whatever it is. And those same technological advances, which have given us more luxury and quality of, of life, have also increased the complexity and sort of furthered our trajectory towards collapse as well. So I don't know that you could really say that having those technological advancements is a reason to continue the military industrial complex. To me, that's not a, a net positive. Yeah, and it really is pretty alarming, again, when you take a step back and you think, if there's an entire industry with hundreds of billions of dollars a year that's being propped up by the government, it's in this industry's best interest that we continue to spend that much and even more on military expenses. And so, again, I don't want to dive into conspiracy theories, but there really is some motivation for us to engage in more conflict. And there's motivation for policies to be made that benefit the industry, but don't benefit the nation or the world at large. All right, so while we're on the topic of military and all the concerns here and all the ways that this is a major factor in collapse, another thing that's worth noting is that the military is contributing to some other major problems like climate change. Not only is all the money that we're spending on military money that we're not spending on fighting climate change, but as it turns out, the Defense Department is one of the world's worst polluters. The U.S. military is the world's top petroleum consumer and the largest carbon polluter. And when you think about the chemical weapon graveyards and all the radioactive waste and the gasoline that's leaked in the groundwater, chemicals from explosives and rocket fuel, batteries, transformers, cleaning fluid, it's honestly astounding just how much the military contributes to the toxins that are causing serious health problems for people. One source claims that there are 39,000 contaminated sites from the military. And there are 141 Superfund sites, which, by the way, you mentioned Superfund before, but those are sites that qualify for special cleanup grants from the federal government. 
which often run out of money <laughs> to, to actually conduct that cleanup because that money's being spent on the military. Yeah, and that's just strictly military sites. But if, if you expand the definition a little bit, you know, 900 of the 1,200 Superfund sites in America are abandoned military facilities or sites that otherwise support military needs. Wow. And I read through some articles. Some of them are honestly really tragic. Um, one covered the story of like a military base that over decades was causing the families living on the military base all sorts of different types of cancer and reproductive issues. Children were dying and they were able to link it back to contaminated groundwater. And so long story short there, the U.S. military is a huge contributor to all the pollution and the waste that is honestly becoming a bigger threat than just about any armed force out there. Along with being the top carbon emitter as well. So obviously adding dramatically to the climate change issue, which is by far the biggest threat that humanity faces in the coming decades. Yeah. So again, going back to the idea that we don't want to be prescriptive here, I tried to think about if I were in a position of power, what choices would I make about the amount of capital we're putting towards our military? And I honestly don't know. I wish we lived in a world in which we didn't need to put so much money toward just defending ourselves. But there is a lot of conflict, a lot of different interests out there, a lot of countries and organizations that would love to make effective attacks against the U.S. At the same time, however, like we've talked about, the amount of money we're putting towards the military is completely unsustainable. And there's all these other issues that are being caused by the military and we're not putting those resources toward all these imminent threats. And I would posit that while there is real threats out there, right, and there is real need for a country to defend itself, when we talk about the amount of money the U.S. is spending compared to what other countries are spending, the threats that the U.S. faces is not as much as the next 10 countries combined, right? And I would even say that the U.S. faces less of a threat than some countries. And so certainly the amount that's being spent is completely disproportionate. And I do think personally that it goes back to what you mentioned and explained very well with the military-industrial complex, that we're spending the money because we can, because it drives the economy in certain ways and it makes some people a lot of money. But the net result of that is all of the things that you mentioned, which is an increasing threat from everything but foreign states or terrorist activities. It is the threat of climate change. It's the threat of increasing pollution and ecocide. It's the increasing threat of a diminishing healthcare system, of failing infrastructure, and everything that will come from catabolic collapse as our system can't sustain itself because of the increasing maintenance costs on its capital, especially when considering the dramatically increasing maintenance cost on military capital. So all of this just takes me back to that question of what is the future going to look like for the militaries of the world? We've talked about the U.S. as a sort of dying empire, right? And we've mentioned in the past how dying empires tend to try and exert their power and tighten their grip 
on their power in the world. And that's one fear that I have for the U.S. is that it will extend itself in in wars that it cannot fight and cannot finish, more so than we've already done. But it does beg the question of, as I alluded to earlier, as climate change increases, as tension between countries increases, as we have decreasing resources, increasing water scarcity, energy crises, and the blame gets thrown around more and more and the tension rises, what actions will our military take along with other militaries of the world And what consequences is that going to have on both local and global societies and its abilities to continue to maintain its infrastructure in a way that allows societies to continue at its current quality of life? That's a question that I think only time can answer. And I think we can all agree more or less on what the trajectory of that future looks like as we head towards a more unstable world. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.